Welcome back to Grinding to a Halt. This week, I'm having a conversation with Alex Goldman. You probably know him best from his time on Reply All. He's currently the producer on Western Kabuki. He is also the driving force behind the band Slow Fawns. Uh, we cover a lot of topics on this episode. Everything from his time at Reply All, what it was like putting together a show that is that massive, his decision to step away from that show, what he's been up to since then, uh, his thoughts on a Tales from the Crypt revival. We talk about prank phone calls, the overall state of the podcasting industry, and kind of where things are sitting now with oversaturation and big tech companies coming in and buying up shows and what that does to those shows. It was a pleasure to pick his brain for a little while, get to spend some time talking to him, and I really hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Thank you for listening. Alex, thank you so much for joining yeah. me. Thanks for having um, me. It's It's been funny trying to get a show off the ground when I'm reaching out to people. I'm like, hey, so here's my idea. I have zero proof of concept. You want to talk to me? And, and honestly, everybody's been like, yeah, no, that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, the only way to prove a concept is to make a proof of concept. So, yeah. you know, someone's got to say yes. Yeah. And luckily, a lot of people have said yes, which is very encouraging. There's a few people that I've reached out to that I know I'll never hear from, but I'm like, hey, you got to shoot a couple big shots and see what happens. I, I'm of the opinion that anytime anyone is trying to make something in the audio space, like if they're like, hey, can I co go to lunch with you and pick your brain or can I have you on my show? I Unless they're like, obviously white supremacists or something, <laughs> unless they have odious views, I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm just sort of like, I, I'm of the opinion that everybody should have a fighting chance to see their ideas through, even if their yeah. ideas are failures. I, I've had that opportunity plenty of times, so I would very much like to give that to other people if they want me to be involved in any way. That's honestly, that's kind of how I've been positioning it to people. Cause like I have a full-time day job and then people are like, so like, is this the goal is like to make money on this? I'm like, realistically, I will never make a penny off of this. This right. is, can I do it? Like, is it something that I can take from concept to execution? And even if just my wife and a couple of my friends listen, like that's a win because I, at least I made something. I moved it beyond just, hey, here's an idea or I thought of a, a catchy title. Uh, right. And like it exists now. I'm, uh, I'm that's what I'm of, into. <laughs> I, I am of the opinion that like we have, we have basically reached the point where no creative endeavors are there. There's going to be like a tiny, tiny, tiny subset of people who are going to be living off of their creative endeavors. Yeah. So um, you got to do it for the love of the game. It's too niche. And I'm fine with that. I like things that can't scale. Again, having a marketing background, everything has to 10 X. Right. And I fucking hate that so much because art does not scale yeah, indefinitely. I hate that too. I hate that too. <laughs> cool. Just kind of jumping in. Uh, I like to kick off by just, you know, finding out who people are, where they come from. As I'm talking to more and more people, I'm getting a lot of through lines of like, this is the kind of kid I was. And then when they start talking about it, like, it makes a lot of sense why I do what I do. In these conversations, people are like, well, I was a kid that, you know, 
nobody could say no to me. I was going to get what I wanted no matter what. And I was going to steamroll. I was going to get things that I wanted. It was just going to happen. Or like, I was just super into learning every minute detail of something. And then they become a creative and their, their job is to figure out minute details of things and put those together into a, you know, a larger picture. And obviously listening to Reply All, it sounds like you would be a person that was really into the minute details and figuring out how things work and exploring those ideas. Was that something you were into as a kid or was that something that's more of a skill you learned? Not at all. I think that if anything, if there's any through line in my life that caused me to go in the direction I did, it's that I have this incredibly well-developed, even if it's not necessarily correct, an incredibly well-developed sense of like fairness and unfairness. Yeah. And um, when things are unfair, it pisses me off. It, <laughs> it, like it makes me so fucking mad. And so I will, I will, here's a great example. I got a $60 parking ticket last week and, um, because the municipality I live in does not allow people to park their cars on the street from 2 p 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. So I got a $60 parking ticket. And a friend of mine who was also staying at my house mm -hmm. got a ticket. And so I said to them, I was like, listen, um, don't pay this ticket. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight yeah. mine as well. So like I spent four hours on Zoom waiting for the judge to get to my case a couple like last week, two weeks ago, because mm -hmm. I absolutely think that it's ridiculous. Also, I'm right on the line of the town that I live in and technically have a zip code in another town. Yeah. So I was like there and I was like, I'm not even in your fucking town. <laughs> I'm not going to pay shit. Neither is, neither are they. And they were like, okay, okay. But like that, that, that is, th that is the thing that drives me is just like this idea that there are things that are fundamentally unfair and should be fought regardless of how big or impactful they actually are. I love that. So I found that I have, as I've gotten older, I've leaned more and more into that, even with things that are like microaggressions. Again, like I'm not a super confrontational person in yeah. life, I don't think. But the other day, this was probably six months or so ago, I was in Target at the return desk and the guy in front of me was being an asshole. And I just mm -hmm. said, I was like, you need to stop. <laughs> I got like right up in his face. And I was like, you need to stop talking to these people this way. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like if we need to go outside and have a conversation and I wasn't trying to threaten him. I was like, yeah. you need to calm down. Like if you want to go outside and calm down, we can talk about this. But like, you need to stop talking to this people, these people this way. And afterward, um, very kindly, they were like, thank you so much. And tried to give me a $10 gift certificate <laughs> to Target. I was like, guys, it's cool. It's just like, I don't know, there is, there, there is like no dignity in working in customer service. I've yeah. done it. I did it for over a decade. It fucking sucks. Um, and so to, you just have to claw back whatever sort of dignity you can have. And, yeah. and that, that led me to a confrontation that like in most circumstances I would not have engaged in. Yeah. Um, but again, that's like my, that's like the sense of fairness thing that like just, um, it's a really like a compulsion. I really, I don't know where it came from. My dad is a judge, but yeah. I don't think that's, that's it. It's not like we talked about his judginess when I was a kid. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know where, why that is, but that, that is sort of where all of that comes from, stems from, I think. That's so funny. No, but that also makes sense in thinking about the types of stories you would work on, whether it be with Reply All or even the stuff you're doing now with Western Kabuki like the types of conversations you're having when you choose to pipe in, uh, you know, being more on just the behind the scenes producer side, 
it is when things are clearly unfair and you'd be like, no, that is absolute bullshit. <laughs> like you, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I actually find myself not wanting to talk on the show so much. I like, mm. I love the personalities of the hosts of Western Kabuki and I'd like want to leave it with them. But every once in a while, I'm just like, oh, you guys need to know this other yeah. outrageous fact. <laughs> or in the case of fucking, what's his name? Brian Krasenstein. Fuck that guy. <laughs> like I, uh, from the bottom of my heart, that guy's such a fucking coward. I, I listened to the first one. I, I couldn't do the second episode. I, I can't stomach those people. Uh, it's not something I could subject myself to. I mean, I will say the guy is like, like he knows how to bob and weave and not take any responsibility for his behavior. I was impressed by like his absolute unwillingness to like cop to anything. Yeah. Not impressed in a good way, but still impressed. He's like the, the perfect model of like the guy you see on, on LinkedIn who posts about how successful he is. And like everything yeah. is, is a spin on how good I am at everything I ever do. And there's no way anyone can touch me. Those guys are absolutely that. So I don't want to spend too much time on Reply All because the sh show is, is what it is. It's over. I loved it while it was happening. I think it was honestly the second podcast I ever listened to. Uh, oh, awesome. And it was one of those things where like I would drive into my office. I had a 90 minute commute each way. Uh, and when an episode would drop, I would drive into the office and we would talk about it like as a group, like everybody in the agency that I sat around, we all listened to it. So like it was a communal event listening to that show for me. So it has a very like special place in my memory because of that. That's um, great. I love that. No, it was super positive. I love it. And what I loved about it is and this really goes to what you were saying about your disdain for injustice is just how human the show is. I feel like. So much of reporting, especially as, you know, people's politics come into it or people try to put politics onto it, it loses its humanity where the root of that show is based in the humanity and the human experience of being a person on the internet now. Uh, which One is of the things we figured out really quickly was if we tried to make a story, an episode about a concept, if we were like, okay, well, here's a heady concept that is taking place in the world, but feels important to us. Like it wouldn't play. It yeah. only played when we, when there was like, when we put a person in the middle of it. Yeah. So even if there was like an idea, I was like, I want to explore this idea. It was always like, okay, find the person. Because yeah. just talking about an idea doesn't really, it's not, it's not compelling. No, no, it's, it's really fucking boring to listen to someone explain. Yeah. It's a YouTube explainer video and I'm not into that. That's not what I'm looking right. for. I need that human connection. Uh, I know you're a horror movie guy. I am a massive horror fan. And like when people ask what you like about it, I'm like, well, good horror is about human experience. Like that's the ones that genuinely scare me are the ones that make me feel for the people in this outrageous situation. Like it can be the dumbest movie, but if the character is good, uh, right. Godzilla minus one is a perfect example. There is such a human story in a giant lizard movie that like people in the theater are crying and like that shouldn't happen because we know it's not real but the humanity just pulls you in you can't fight it it's just good it's captivating and that's honestly that's what how I, I feel about um that's how i feel about drag me to hell a movie that is totally oh, ridiculous yeah. but at its heart is a story about a person who has let their avarice get the best of them and is now it's like it's a parable it's yeah. just a uh but i fucking love that movie so out of control but so human at its core the goat the the talking goat in that 
in the exorcism scene is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's so good. It's classic Raimi. I love every second of it. Um, It's really good. But the thing that interests me most about Reply All is not the show itself, but the show ending. Like walking away from something is never easy, regardless of the situation, the behind the scenes factors. I don't care about any of that stuff. I think that's irrelevant. But just the act of taking a thing that is successful and that you had built and I'm, I assume you could have stayed at and could still be there if, if so chose, but walking away from it, what is that mix of emotions in a show that is so clearly about finding connection with people and telling these human stories to then walk away from something that, that you've put together and has grown and has this impact? What's that feel like? How do you come to that decision where you're like, yeah, okay, this is, this is done. Was it just, it's not what I want it to be anymore? Um, uh, the agony of making it was greater than the agony. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I didn't like working for Spotify. I think yeah. that, that working for a big company is not for me. Um, yeah. and it was kind of a death by a thousand cuts thing, you know, where it just felt like, I mean, when we started it, it was just this thing we made. And then, yeah. and then when it, when it hit which I'm grateful for and I'm so happy about and don't regret at all, et cetera, et cetera. Like it became this thing that was, you know, leaden with expectation and we always had to be outdoing ourselves and we always had to go bigger. And that resulted in a, that I think that that was something that we took on, which maybe was not necessarily accurate, Mm -hmm. but you know, there was this, idea that we had to keep making this thing bigger and bigger and then the result was we were making longer episodes more ambitious episodes um and putting them out less and yeah. s- the speed with which we were putting them out started to feel really really bad um and i mean one of the things about doing a show that is that is specific to one topic is you can do one version of each story you can do yeah. like like I can't, you know, the people were like, keep doing more hacking stories. And I was like, well, we touched on all the big ways that people get hacked. Like, there's not yeah. really a way to do these stories again. You can do one story about a person who inadvertently goes viral and that's it. That's all you get. You then have to yeah. go do something else. So, you know, it was this, it was, uh, it was, um, I was starting to burn out because I was starting to run out of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was becoming this thing where we had to constantly go bigger and bigger. And then, uh, I don't know, I was just um, not enjoying working at the company. Work- yeah. Walking away from it sucked. I thought I was going to do it for the rest of my life. Um, yeah. I am not sure that it is a thing that would still be going today. As of yesterday, Spotify laid off yeah, I saw uh, that. many successful uh, shows including a a Pulitzer Prize and Peabody award-winning show. Um, They shut down and they shut down Heavyweight, which just, I think the same day ended up on the New York Times best podcast of the year. Yeah. So uh, the profit motive was obviously way more important to them. Um, So uh, I don't know that Reply All would still be around. I think that maybe they would have cut us. Yeah. But I have no idea. And honestly, the finite nature of it to me only increases its value. I like things that end. To me, there is beauty in something have a, having a beginning and middle and end. Like, I like that. It's for the same I reason, mean, I, I don't watch TV shows that have 20 seasons, because I'm like, well, I don't, I don't care. I know nothing of substance can happen if it's on forever. 
There's a thing that happens so halfway through the creation of a thing. I think Corey Sika, who has written for a million different places, New York Magazine, mm-hmm. the New York Times style section. I can't remember where he where he's writing now. He said to PJ early on something like, you have two years where everybody will be on your side and they want you to succeed. And after that, people are going to turn on you in ways that you can't like that you won't expect. <laughs> And it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, the audience bifurcated between people who are like, they're boring and people who are like, they want to make, they like, they just wanted us to make the same stuff over and over again. People who are like, they're woke now. People who like, everyone had (laughs) a fucking opinion about it. Um, And um, it's not fun to make a show for people like that. It's not fun to make a show for people who are mad at you for not doing the thing they want to do, want you to do, which I think um, is a symptom of internet culture and stand culture. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. Uh, that part wasn't fun. Um, but was manageable at least until PJ left, and then it became way, way worse. It was just people constantly being pissed at us all the time. Um, Yeah, it's it's funny you say that. There's a uh a British metalcore band called Architects, and they've been around for I don't know twenty years. They put out a ton of albums, and over the last few years, they've gotten more and more melodic. Um, you know, moved from super heavy, very technical guitar playing to very melody driven, huge choruses, and it's paid off. They had a number one album. They're playing massive arenas, but the internet culture around people, especially in the metal scene, they don't like when bands change. They want the same chugs all the time. Don't change. Like, give me a breakdown of a chug and a china, and we'll be good to go. So yesterday they they released a song called "Scene Red." And their caption online was just, are you happy now? And it's literally everything you can possibly do sonically to make like a hardcore and metalcore song. But then the lyrics are calling out all the people who say you don't do this anymore. Uh, And pretty much it's a a song telling them to go touch grass. (laughs) It's the equivalent. (laughs) And people are eating it up. I love it. I love it. I also feel like like an asshole for complaining because like, you know, people were really kind to us. Yeah. Um, and I don't discount that and I'm really grateful for it. But also I, I am um, way too vain and a person to, uh, I'm way too vain a person to not read my critics. So yeah. the result of that is like, I just kind of like the amount of, of anger people had toward me about things that were like very much outside of my control. <laughs> uh, really, it got to me after a while. So, you know. yeah, no, I, I feel like I will be the same because when you care about something, when you when empathy is in your nature, you're going to really care what people say about you. Assuming anyone beyond people that know me ever listen to this, like I've had people on calls because I I make calls and I talk for a living mention my voice before. Like, and I know in podcasts, people love to talk about people's voice or like, Hey, your voice is grating or annoying, or you'd speak really high for a dude, stuff like that. Like, I know those things are coming if anyone listens and I know I will see it. So it's just about how do I switch that off and try to care as little as possible and not let it deter me from doing the thing that actually matters which is just putting myself out there regardless of how it's received. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I do think that it's like, for me, it's like I can get a, a million compliments and then one person can say some sour thing and I it will yeah. fuck my day up. Um, and that, that's my, my problem. That's not theirs. But that, yeah. that, that, is, that is like a contributing factor to like really actually enjoying kind of being in the background for Western Kabuki for the most part. 
<laughs> yeah. Like I, I like I like that aspect of it. Does that aspect of it feel really nice to be that hands off? Like you can like you said, you can pipe in when you want. You know, obviously they're very giving. It is you are the fourth member of the show. It's never discussed as like, oh, Alex is just the producer. Like it is wholly no, everybody's, inclusive. Everybody's they're the best. They yeah. they like we did not know each other before we started making this. Yeah. They were just like, we're looking for a producer. I said, I can show, I can show up and do this. And that was it. That was all we did. <laughs> and um, they have been so on board with me. They are this just unbelievably sweet. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I just like kind of, I, I mean, the reason I wanted to do it is because I enjoyed listening to them. And I was like, yeah. I don't need to, I, I've said enough on the on, <laughs> into a microphone. I can take a little break. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of breaks, so you you left Reply All. That was what twenty twenty two. Yeah. So, and I I love the last episode because it's you pitching to me what is something that needs to happen, which is oh, the, a the a resurrection thing. of yeah of Tales from the Crypt. And I know you said like that's all tangled up, and even the name is owned by someone different. I've referred to it as Bojack Corpseman. Would be. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's, that's a great name for it. So, uh, that, like, I, I know that's obviously like pipe dream things that are too expensive to ever happen. But what are some of the things that you have been focusing on or wanted to pursue? I mean, as you can see, I've got the Slow Fawns LP behind me. Oh, like, yeah. I uh, I am a fan of the things you do, not just like when when I like a person, I just pursue what that person does. I'm like, whatever they do, I want to consume it because I like the way their brain puts things together. So what are some of the uh, other things that you're working on or, or hoping to do? I wish that there was more that I was working on. I bet like uh, the podcast industry is in a very bad shape, very bad shape right now. Yeah. Um, Oversaturation for sure. And then especially when it, when it comes to making things that are uh, that require journalism. Um, yeah. That is not that require a budget. Um, yeah. and are not made by celebrities. It's just not, there's no market for it right now. Yeah. So I've been pitching stuff for a year and getting re rejections nonstop, um, which yeah. is, sucks ass. It's not fun. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I still want to make stuff. Uh, more than that, I'd just like to have a job. <laughs> I'm trying to figure that out. I mean, Western Kabuki's a gig, but it's, you know, yeah. we're, we're, a, we're a small time operation. We're lean. Yeah. So well, until Santos comes on, it's going to happen. And then oh that's what God, it's going to blow up. George Santos comes on. Oh. I mean, we got Marianne Williams. In there. We're, <laughs> yeah, we're, I saw that went live this morning. We, every once in a while, we get someone where I'm like, oh, damn. And then Caleb's like, yeah, I've been working on this for a year. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I'm really happy working on that. I like yeah. I would like it to grow. Um, if we can figure out ways to do that, we're going to keep doing it. <clears throat> I have had a like five or six ideas, some really crazy, some really conventional, um, and everything, basically, I get a polite, like, oh, you know, we think you're really great, and, like, we really respect what you do, but we need, like, you want too much, you want to make something too expensive. Yeah. Yeah, and then just with the way the numbers games work, like you said, the, the amount of time it takes to put something complicated together they want weekly releases or, you know, there's so many daily shows that are coming out. That way they can hit those those stream numbers per month. So their advertising revenue can be what it needs to be. 
And it definitely doesn't sound like that's the type of show you are interested in making, is one of the words, just a, a content mill. I mean, I'd love to be putting stuff out on a more regular basis Yeah, than we were by the end of Reply All. But like, also, reporting takes time, and sometimes stories don't yep. pan out. A lot of times stories don't pan out. I yeah. would say we were at a ratio of like 1 to 8, maybe 1 to 10, where yeah. like we would pursue 10 things to various degrees. Like, you know, we yeah. do a couple interviews on something, or we'd get a third of a way through a story and hit a dead end or find out the answer wasn't that interesting. Um, and I mean, that's the kind of stuff I want to do in order to explain the world. You have to, you have to like actually understand it and the understanding yeah. requires time and money. Yeah. And um, there's no appetite for that right now. Uh, and that's not just in podcasts. That's fucking everywhere. Like everyone oh, yeah. I know who works in TV, they're like, Oh, I can't get anything made. Everyone yep. I know who works in like, who like makes YouTube stuff. They're like, oh, all the advertisers are bailing. Like it's tough out there. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> But uh, I don't know. I'm hopeful. In the meantime, I'm just working on Western Kabuki. And then I've been talking with a friend about starting to do a show where we just make prank phone calls because I have a real predilection <laughs> toward, which is always like, has always been like a long term, like I've always really wanted to do yeah. a prank phone call show. Um, I, and I think I, that we've, we're like in a weird renaissance of prank phone calls right now. There's just like, really really great stuff out there yeah. that i enjoy quite a bit i uh i am a sucker for those i don't know if you've heard the show uh do you know who jason siegel is yeah yeah uh, so i was a huge i was a number one bone zone fan like yeah. i was the biggest fucking bone zone fan in the world i think it might be the best podcast ever made it's so good <laughs> anyone who is not familiar the bone zone is a podcast where two comedians it was like it's really hard to explain because it's like it was like free associating almost yeah. that they would like come on one day and be like, Hey, uh, do you want to call, do you want to like call people and boss some people around? And then they'd be like, well, who should we call? And they'd be like, Oh, well, Hugo boss, obviously <laughs> they call Hugo boss and be like, listen, I'm going to need you to put me on the phone with one of your customers right now. Um, just so inspired and so weird. And, um, that one of them went on to do a podcast called Do You Know Who Jason Siegel Is? where he would call people and ask them if they knew who Jason Siegel was, which um, and uh, then also inadvertently yeah. ended up selling waterbeds. Like that, that oh, yeah, storyline. Yeah. Like big, <laughs> big water, the waterbed uh, B story of that thing was really bizarre. They called a waterbed guy and were constantly trying to get <laughs> members of their audience to buy a waterbed, which some did. Yeah, a guy did um, in Vegas, and then they went to his house and recorded an episode in his house. <laughs> one of the things that I remember most clearly is that one of the one of the things they did is they called a pet shop and they were like, "Hey, uh, yeah, I've got a waterbed, and I wanted there to be sharks in it." And <laughs> so they were like trying to get them to give them a shark so they could put it in. The, and the person was like, "No, it wouldn't survive." And they were like, oh, yeah. I think it, but they were like, "Don't you think it would look really cool though?" Um, I think we should give it a shot. So, and then they would ask if the person on the phone knows who Jason Siegel is. Right, and that was that was the bit. It was so that good. Was the entire thing. So, and, good. um, some enterprising redditor, uh, for the "Do you know who Jason Siegel is?" subreddit, um, made a spreadsheet of how many people actually knew who Jason Siegel was. It was an incredibly low number. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for the guy who was on one of the biggest shows on TV yeah, I know. for a decade. <laughs> Very funny. All right. 
before that tangent, I was going to ask about mental health and how you, you balance the rejections or just the, you said, you know, even being at reply all towards the end, the amount of work it took to put that together when, and I know this personally as someone who I've always had depression. It's always been part of my life. It's always something I've, I've worked to try to keep in check, but I am a client facing person. My job is to get on a call and be happy and like make people feel good. So finding ways to balance, hey, today I feel like absolute shit and my brain is telling me to do terrible things. Like, but now I have to get on this call and be happy. So like trying to force myself into those those mindsets. How do you balance that as, you know, when you were working at Reply All, trying to put together a story, trying to record a story, obviously you can't get on mic and be depressed because people can hear it like it, it shows. I think I got pretty good at faking it. That's yeah. one thing. Um... And I think that, it, you know, I, what's the term they use for people who have autism? What, masking? I think that, yeah. I, I think I got pretty good at masking my depression yeah. uh, and stuff like that. I mean, I also had a team of amazing people who yeah. could hold my hand in those moments. And I mean, the difference between, you know, having to get on a sales call, which I think is what you you have to do, or, yeah. you know, a marketing call, yeah. um, and actually like making a thing that you enjoy making. It's enough to be like, well, okay, shit's bad, but I'm doing this thing that's fun. Yeah. Um, the difference, of course, is I love reporting and I fucking mm -hmm. hate editing more than anything <laughs> in the world. So like when it came to editing, I just felt like like that was the real struggle for me. It was like yeah. getting through those moments where I was just like, I'm not doing well and I'm not enjoying this. And the way that Reply All edited also was really insane. Like, uh, I, I mean... It, it was something that we learned from the people who taught us how to make radio, like the This American Life folks. But the yeah. way that it worked is we would all get into a room and um, sit there with a paper copy of the story and read the story while we play the pieces of tape. And then it was like a struggle session. We'd sit there for yeah. like, we'd sit there for like three or four hours taking apart every piece, what worked and what didn't. And um, for a person who is like feeling very raw, yeah it's really hard like i it took me years to train myself to be like you know what this is in service of the story this isn't an assessment of me as a reporter um it was so fucking hard to get to get into that mindset of being like yeah this is not about the quality of my reporting this is about making this the most accessible most comprehensible and like most interesting version of the story yeah um but but there was a long period of time where when people would when people didn't like a story where the they were like this isn't working or this this part of it isn't working I was like oh it's because you think I'm shitty at this and because like I'm a worthless piece of garbage and I should be tossed in a dumpster and you guys can go ahead and do that because I don't want to work here yeah um and that would come out in some ways uh I think that we're not great I think that I did okay like I wasn't an abusive prick but like mm -hmm. I could get defensive. Yeah, I think like anybody can about their work, and uh, it it you know it was um that was the hardest part for me is like having to having to make um to make the thing as good as possible while not feeling very good. Yeah, <laughs> the actual process of interviewing people like that's always come pretty easily to me. Um, and I think after a while, I mean, I don't know about in marketing, but like after a while, it just became like, oh, I, I know how to, this, I can do this relatively effortlessly. 
Oh yeah. No, a good example. A couple years ago, mentally, I was in absolute worst space I have ever been in. Um, I got on calls, powered through all my calls. Like it was a quote unquote great day. Like everything was going really good. And then like I closed my laptop and just like crumbled onto the floor. Like couldn't speak a word. I was just done because I'm really good at switching off that part of me and like, oh, it's work mode. Now uh, I'm work Zach. Like work Zach is going to come through and get shit done. And I'm not going to think about the other stuff I've got to do. Um, and then that was a day where I really realized how much like the, the powering through method was just damaging me as a person. Um, and now I really needed to take a step back and be like, Hey, maybe, maybe this job is like killing me. This, this might actually be really bad for me, <laughs> oh, God. but that's, I, I feel like that's more and more common as I'm talking to people about this type of thing, especially people who have client facing jobs or jobs where they are the face of a company or the face of a brand people are like oh yeah no i feel that like i feel like i have to be a version of myself that i don't necessarily even like uh to get my job done sometimes uh which is it's in, it's interesting especially in people i'm talking to who have creative jobs where they feel like they've almost lost track of themselves in the creativity and pursuit of the creation, not even in the pursuit of the art at this point, because it's become a money generator and it's become this whole other thing that they've kind of lost track of what the root was. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also feels like kind of embarrassing to complain about. Cause oh, absolutely. Like, Cause like, Oh yeah, you get, to, you have like a dream job. You get to go and set slake your curiosity for the, yeah like for you know whatever you want like you get to go in and just like like see whatever sort of tickles your fancy yeah what do i have to complain about like that's ridiculous it's embarrassing it's embarrassing to say that stuff but also you know it's true yeah it's and i definitely feel that because i've had jobs and even my job now people like no that's great like you my job is not to do that much work my job is to tell other people to do work and then i talk about the work in a way that makes clients feel good. Like, hey, here's what we did for you. The numbers are going up, everything's good. But for me, there's no fulfillment in that. It serves a purpose, it pays my mortgage. Like Mm -hmm. my kids kids have health insurance. But for me, I feel just as empty at the end of the day doing that job as if like I just sat on the couch and did nothing. Like there's nothing fulfilling in it, which is why for me it's important to find things like this or like, no, I need to do something that does spark an interest in me and that does pursue a creation as opposed to just a regurgitation of something someone else did, which is really what my job is at this point. Well, I mean, the, the trade-off there is like the trade-off of the job where you're like, this is fundamentally unfulfilling, but it pays the mortgage is at the end of the day, you get to like step up away from your phone and your computer. And like, you can, I mean, this isn't always the case, but this is often the case and you get to live your life. Yeah. And like the thing with making that show is like, holy shit, I was so grateful. It was amazing. It was so successful. I mean, it was really wonderful. People were so nice to us. We got so many opportunities. I met so many amazing people during the course of the reporting. But when I got up and stepped away from the show, I was Alex Goldman from Reply All. And like, I couldn't step away from that role. And to some degree, I still can't. Um, Yeah. It's like just a thing that I I am now. And I didn't realize going into it. Like I had no concept of what that meant going into it. Yeah. There's a tweet that Lady Gaga posted once, which was just all caps. I found it so self-indulgent, but I also secretly kind of agree with it where she wrote, (laughs) fame is a prison. Um, 
I thought it was really funny, but what I thought was funnier was that someone responded and said, shouldn't have went on stage and did a duet with Bradley Cooper then. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true. Like if you didn't want this kind of attention, like you had the opportunity not to have it and now yeah. you have it. And it's a wonderful thing that so many people covet. You kind of just have to suck it up, which is yeah. like what I've had to do. And my fame is one, one millionth of Lady Gaga's. Yeah. Uh, um, I can't imagine what she deals with, but I also can't imagine, you know, um, what kind of insane life she leads. Like, I can't imagine how fancy and weird and indulgent her life is yeah. in a way that mine was not and will never be. No, I think those are things that even if before you started the show, you sat down with Lady Gaga and she explained, hey, here's what fame is like. You can't comprehend I it. it. I wouldn't have gotten no, it. I wouldn't have I, like, I, yeah, whatever. I can handle it. Well, I explain it to like, People who don't have kids. I'm like, I can tell you what it's like to be a dad. You're not going to understand because you're not a dad. Like it right. fundamentally changed so much of who I am as a person. Oh, down to my belief system changed when I had a kid. So like, there's no way you can explain that to people who don't have kids. Like I can't explain the love I have for these children. I just, I cannot do it. And if I could, you would not understand it because you haven't felt it. Right. Getting towards towards wrapping up, I want you to explain the <laughs> the tales from the crypt pitch because we talked about it briefly. I oh, just yeah, want yeah. other people to hear it because to me it is a genius idea. <laughs> well, I always love. I mean, as a kid, like a huge part. I, tales from the crypt came out in more like ninety ninety one, so I was probably 12, yeah. 11 or twelve. Um, I always found the Crypt Keeper to be the best part of the show because oh, it yeah. was like such a ridiculous juxtaposition for to the ghoulish stuff. Yeah. But what do we really know about the Crypt Keeper, right? He's um dead, I think. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> he hangs out in a crypt. Um, there there is a lot of sort of meta uh textual information that you get over the course of the series and the movies that like he knows that he's being filmed. Yeah. And in, I think, the second season, there's a very weird episode about a sideshow freak that has sex with a mummy, and it turns out that their child is the Crypt Keeper. So, <laughs> canonically, in the show, Tales from the Crypt, he is the son of a 2,000-year-old mummy and a sideshow freak. Um, but we don't know much about him. Yeah. And the idea for the show was, like, we we follow the Crypt Keeper, the actor, um, after Tales from the Crypt has been canceled, but he's still trying to like find his way in Hollywood. Um, and I, I, I just, I like, I, and he also is basically the same guy that he is on the show. Like it's like yeah. all, all ridiculous puns and it's all sort of like, he's like still very macabre. He's sort of like got this Adams family vibe, but he's also living in like the mortal world. And um, no one really, uh, no one really, acknowledges the weird stuff about him like he just exists in the world like in my in my in my version in my vision of it like when tales from the crypt was very popular he had a, he had a kid with a with a model and now they're separated and she's with a with like a you know used car dealer or something like i like the idea of him being divorced and uh being being a single father and like having to deal with a lot of human problems while being like yeah comically inhuman <laughs> i love it it's it's such a perfect idea and it made me so happy that that was your last segment on the show <laughs> and i mean 
I, I, I wrote like a pilot for it, but I'm not in the, not in the movie industry. And I don't know how yeah. you make these kinds of things. Um, I've talked to friends who do write for a living and they're like, they're like, it's, they were like, it's funny. It could use a lot of improvement because I don't know how to write for TV. Yeah. But they were also like, it's fucking, it's like ridiculous. Like, it's like, <laughs> who is the audience for this? The audience for this is like, guys 40 something dads it's me the audience is me and it's it's no one else i was like you know this feels like a thing adult swim would be into or something and they were like yeah, yeah who who watches adult swim knows who or what the crypt keeper is <laughs> i'm like yeah okay that's fine that's fair yeah it's you, it's you and me we would have fun watching this show oh my god we'd have a blast i do think that like in the same way that like you know there's a child's play tv show now i think it yeah. probably could have a home somewhere but i also know that um the actual i mean if there's if i've learned anything from learning about the making of the tv show alf which is something that i find really fascinating um it um the reason that alf ended it by my understanding, this could be wrong, but the reason it understand it ended by my understanding is not because it was not popular, but because it was incredibly expensive to make because in order to have the puppeteer for Alf, they had to um, make all the make all the uh, the uh, sets raised, and there was like constant malfunctions of the animatronic aspects of Alf. and like, there was a lot of standing around waiting for them to set up the shots and like everyone yeah. fucking hated it. And it cost a ton of money. And like the Crypt Keeper is a complex puppet. Yeah. Animatronic puppet. Um, and believe me, I've learned quite a bit about him in the time that I have been, <laughs> that I've, uh, the, the thing that I learned about him is that he was made by the guy who made Chucky and he actually has Chucky's eyes. That's so, so weird. Yeah. So he has Chucky's eyes. Um, but but with the exception of one of the one of the Tales from the Crypt movies, you never see um, the Crypt Keeper standing. Yeah. And in that movie, in order to make that happen, they very crudely and very poorly mapped his face onto an actual human being. And it looked like shit. So I can't yeah. imagine how you'd like make him move. Like, I don't know how you'd make this character move. It would be really expensive. Um but, you know, in order to make a show that's dynamic about a character, you can't just have him sit behind a desk the whole time. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I, I, it was all a pipe dream anyway, kind of. Even the voice of, even John Cassier, the voice of the, the Crypt Keeper, sort of when I pitched him the idea, was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's, a, it's, even those things that you know, hey, realistically, nothing will come from it. Looking into it, the pursuit of writing an episode like there's fulfillment in that in and of oh, itself definitely. it was I'm just so it, it's it, my favorite ideas are like the the ones that definitely won't work one of yeah. the things that i was like pitching as a podcast idea that everybody was like oh sounds fun will, would never work in a million years was um to get like a band or bands to appear in to like come to a studio and be like okay so here's the deal you guys have to work. Let's say it's like, I don't know. Let's say it's municipal waste. Municipal mm -hmm. waste comes into the studio and I say, okay, you have 90 minutes. You have to make a bluegrass song go. And then I would record the process of them making a song that is not their style of music. And they would have like a very brief period of time to do it. And 
I really tried super hard. I was like trying to pilot an episode with some friends of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody was just like, this is the craziest idea. First of all, no one is going to go for this. Like any, any artist is going to be like, fuck you. I, yeah. I take myself more seriously than this. Second of all, um, there's like all these, all the, like record labels are very weird about licensing and who owns yeah. audio. And I was like, but it's just going to be like a goof song. But can you imagine if you got fucking Radiohead to show up and do like a drum and bass or like do it, not like a Miami bass song. And yeah. um, like they had 90 minutes to do it and it ended up maybe sounding like shit, but still they had to. But it, it, it ships no matter what it's going out. Yeah. Like no matter what happens at the end of the episode, they have to listen to it and they get 90, they get like 90 minutes. I love that. Um, I love that. It idea. was a, but like that, I mean, I love trying to push ideas yeah. that are that crazy because when you actually pull them off, which we did rarely, but occasionally, um, it was always the best ones. It was always the craziest, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like picking up and going to India is an insane thing to do to find a telemarketer. Totally. But or it like turned into this a... saga that like I got so invested in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. And like, you know, you know, getting on uh, like a like a Discord call with some scammers and getting them to give someone a hundred dollars in Bitcoin, um, yeah, like great, great, what a what a treat! And who would have thought that would be possible? Anyway, I love it. I love it. Thank you for coming on. I will support whatever of these crazy ideas get made. I'm I'm in for the long ride. It's fun, even if it's just more slow Fonz albums. I'm here for that too. Thanks, so, Zach. I appreciate that. Keep it coming. I appreciate right, what man. you do. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much. <laughs>